the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 2, it is a delight to bring back our dear friend Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, the best school if you are interested in a career in public policy. And boy, do we need you. And he is the best person to be leading that school, one of my favorite public intellectuals and academics. Welcome back to Terra Cognita as well, uh, Dean Peterson. Uh, how was Switzerland? Did you find my chalet? Did you have some fondue? Yes, uh, yes, on both counts. Good. Beth, and uh, great to be with you. We did uh, have an amazing uh, trip, the senior administration team from the university going out to uh, Vevey, Switzerland, in the southern part of the country, right on Lake Geneva, to see the new Pepperdine uh, campus that they're building there. And it is just a remarkable place. I am envious of the undergrad students and, and graduate students who will have a chance to benefit from, uh, I mean, it's due to, there's still work being done, it's due to open this summer, but really just a remarkable undertaking by Pepperdine. Well, I'll be looking forward to going and visiting them with you, Pete. Very well. Was that Very your first, well. by the way, was that your first trip to Switzerland? And if so, or if, yeah. yeah. So I'm always curious when people go to a, a another country for the first time, if they learned anything, uh, especially eyebrow raising or enlightening, did you did you learn anything that was kind of special or interesting that you brought back with you? Well, maybe from a uh, a cultural perspective, one of the things that kind of struck me was uh, in in a number of different um, exchanges how much the the Swiss really make sure that you're. Uh, for lack of a better term, handling your own business. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it, there were a couple different places where, you know, I could see that if uh, if if the same setting was in America, there would be uh, numerous uh, safety signs up uh-huh. and barriers and railings and uh-huh. so forth. And they really just expect you to act like an adult and, and take care of yourself <laughs> in a number of places. Uh, the train system there is just remarkable. Uh, we we used that uh, several times. But you're supposed to open the train doors to get in if, if you're looking to access a particular train. Things don't open automatically for you. And there were just a, a couple yeah. things like that where you think Europe and even Switzerland where it's just a – you 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 might think it's a uh, like a democratic socialist. Yeah, kind it's of not as paternal as we is. imagine, as it turns exactly out. Exactly right. No, very well. That's that's really the word. It it really is uh, very much uh, dependent on people making decisions for themselves and probably so. being on time a lot too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah <laughs> I'm guessing that's a, <laughs> are, is no. one of your pet peeves. Uh, people who are who can't be on time. It's one of mine. It's a, I have a feeling they're pretty good about that in Switzerland. <laughs> that is absolutely that is absolutely the case. Uh, yeah, every you know the proverbial trains running on yeah, time. That yeah, is yeah, definitely what what happens there as well as as well as everything else. But uh, just an extremely impressive. Uh, 
place and and visit there. So looking forward to the next one. Oh, good. Thanks uh, for sharing that with us, Pete. Pete, you and I have talked before about a scholar. You probably know a little better than I. I haven't seen him in in years, but I remember uh, Rui, how do you pronounce it, Teixeira? Teixeira. Rui Rui Teixeira. He... um, When I was living in D.C., he would hold these occasional lunches with Mm. someone, Marshall Whitman maybe. He would hold these occasional lunches to talk about thoughts on how the Democratic Party could become the majority party. And a lot of conservatives would show up because Rui spoke to a lot of the strings that, uh, you know, resonated with us. He has, I think, an important piece in Substack today at his Liberal Patriot page. Um, titled How Democrats Should Handle the Culture Wars. And while acknowledging that they are tremendously vulnerable, they are big vulnerabilities for the Democrats, ignore, attack, and defuse have been the strategies, but mostly ignoring and attacking, he's arguing for defusing more and more of them. And I just, you know, you who know him a little bit and like his work, I just wondered what your thoughts were on some of this. Well, I think the piece makes some very important points. It's one of those things that uh, you say to yourself, wow, yeah, if Democrats actually listen to this advice, they really would, it would be a tough coalition uh, politically to beat in a number of different places, uh, states, if not nationally. Uh, But of course, he is writing a piece like that because he knows he needs to make that argument. Uh, within his own party that is, uh, frankly, not listening to him. I mean, there's a reason why he left uh, just one of the backstories I think we've talked about here before. He was at the Progressive Policy Mm -hmm. Institute uh, in D.C., one of the, as the name connotes, a more uh, left-leaning think tank, uh, to go to the American Enterprise Institute in the last year, which, of course, is one of the more center-right think tanks, and in large part in, de- in describing, I think was in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. why he was making that transition. It was really because his perspective on this more centrist, uh, democratic, uh, center-left view was, uh, was increasingly out of favor, and not just out of favor, uh, was actually being uh, verbally dismissed and attacked within uh, the think tank where he was working. So it's kind of an interesting point you're 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 making here. Um, that if you are a moderate Democrat, um, if you tend to be, you know, someone who writes from a more moderate, say, Joe Lieberman type point of view, the yep. really only the the only organs that are really open to you and available to you are the conservative journals or the conservative think tanks. They don't want you otherwise. Uh, The Wall Street Journal op-ed page, for example, which hosts people like William Galston, he wouldn't have an outlet otherwise, right? Galston is, I think it's fair to say, a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party, but not this Democratic Party, right? Right. No, that's right. And uh, I've uh, been on, I was just telling Bill um, on your team before hopping on here, I've been on the road most of the day. I have gave, gave a couple speeches uh, today at a couple Lincoln clubs here in the Los Angeles area, and the themes of those speeches have been about what's going on on America's college campuses. Yeah. And that subject, which we've also talked about before, but this real ideological swing that we've 
been seeing over the last several years on many American college campuses, I think in many ways mirrors the ideological swing that we've seen and with many of the same people mm-hmm. right, coming mm-hmm. coming out of these environments and then going into mm-hmm. uh, Democratic Party or progressive causes uh, or the media, for example. I think about Barry Weiss mm-hmm. and her letter leaving uh, the New York Times editorial mm-hmm. um, uh, group that uh, it's just become very ideological. But there's it would be one thing if it just was holding to a certain set of uh, progressive, even far left principles, but there's also a culture that, and a personality, if you will, that seems to go along with it, which is to treat any opposition, even if it's coming from slightly left of where, you, or slightly to the right of where you are, but mm-hmm. still broadly on the left, mm-hmm. uh, with derision, um, if not outright uh, dismissal. You know, so uh, that certainly, again, I think that the two pieces there, not just the policy pieces, but also this this cancel culture within the left uh, is obviously evidenced in uh, Teixeira's work. And uh, obviously, we can see it with Matt Taibbi. And we think we think about it with Bill Galston as well, that um, it, there's really a there's two parts to explore here. You know, you're putting together two things that I think are really key and important to what is going on. I don't know if you were in Switzerland when those hearings uh, on uh, social media were taking place at the House Judiciary Committee with Matt Taibbi and... Uh, yeah, I followed... I saw his... You saw, I saw okay. the text of his piece in okay. his blog, yeah. Yeah, so he and Schellenberger, who both said they had yep. voted for Biden, right? But they were yeah. lifting up the hood <laughs> of something yeah. that was going on terribly anti I think terribly anti-American uh, which was you know the pressure put on social media to censor and the derision they were met they were Biden supporters but the derision for opening up a window into what the Democratic Party was doing at least from the perspective of the White House political operations and the Department of Justice was way too much for the Democrats on that committee the derision that they faced for just you know stepping off that one sacrosanct lily pad of defending the party at all times, at all costs, was so evident, right. so much so, that one of the congresswomen, you know, didn't realize how stupid she was with one of her questions, which was asking them who Barry Weiss was. And she oh, didn't know who yeah. Barry, which said two things. She hadn't known who yeah. someone that wrote for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and was a prominent journalist was, and that she had never read any of the case that the three of them had made. It was a hell of yeah. an... Admi- Let me take the quick break, Pete, and come back yeah. on some of that with you. Pete Peterson is our guest from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. You've all heard me uh, talking about why refi for a while now, and if you still have some questions about what it can mean for you to invest with them, they would love for you to give them a call at 888-YREFI34, and they'll happily put you in touch with any number of satisfied customers and clients in the Phoenix area who have been investing with them and doing quite well. And they'd like me to ask you how your IRA is doing. If you'd like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent, on the stock market or the Fed, you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds, and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investy 
www.refi.com. Pete Peterson is our guest from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We're talking about a few things here that were inspired by this piece by Roy, uh, by, uh, Roy Teera at, um, at uh, the Liberal Patriot on Substack. And Pete, before I come back to the hearings uh, that we were talking about, his notion of the democratic strategy, which has been to ignore or attack on their culturally inflected vulnerabilities, where he recommends they need to start diffusing them. If I hear you right, you're saying what I think, um, but tell me if I'm not hearing you right. It's not going to happen because it cannot happen. And you saw an illustration, as you put it, kind of with those hearings last week. You had these two committed Democrats in uh, Taibbi and Schellenberg, or at least people who voted for the Democratic candidate for president, who were uh, verbally uh, assaulted uh, by the Democratic minority on the Judiciary Committee for daring to just wander off the cadre a very little bit. It's it's they can't defuse. When there are so many martinets in the uh, in the, in the party that require you to have one hundred percent compliance, that's what I think the problem with Rui's piece is ultimately. Yeah, but I, I think it is worth exploring this connection between uh, a set of policy principles, which are vaguely on the left, and and then moving even further and further left. I mean, for example, the the issue of personal pronouns was not a thing three years ago. Correct. Now it's a thing. Right. And we can go through, you know, chapter and verse, free college education. Right. Not a thing right. four or five years ago, right. except for, you know, the outskirts of the party, now a real mantra. And so there's that part of it, which continues to move further and further left. But there's this this personality piece, which, as you said, will, will broker no disagreement. Right. And... It's something that I think does not have a – that is not mirrored on the right. And it's something you and I have talked about before as it relates to the differences between the populism on the left and the populism on the right, mm-hmm. where the populism on the left, in my view, really is ideological. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that, any – and it's matched with a perspective on debate and discussion, which is speech is violence. Mm-hmm. So if you take a position different than mine, you're, we're not going to debate it. You're just ipso facto evil or wrong and not worth speaking to. Right. The populism on the right, while there certainly are some policy debates, we're seeing that in Ukraine, for example, yeah. some of the foreign policy pieces, yeah. but is really more tied to Trump and that kind of more uh, aggressive personality mm-hmm. than it is a real debate around or a major debate around policy issues. And we, you saw that when even some of the conservatives or the Republicans, I should say, in Congress who really had come out as anti-Trump, when you looked at their voting records during the administration, they pretty much aligned with everything the White House was proposing. Yes. But on the on the left, it's a different kind of thing, yes. and I don't know that we have fully considered uh, this connection between this dismissive cancel culture that we have seen in parts on the right. I'm not saying it's not there, but it really seems to be uh, part of what's happening on the left, and certainly when you see people like a 
a Rui Teixeira, Matt Taibbi, and others who, in many ways, would be supportive of what was kind of standard Democratic Party platforms going back just three or four years ago. Now they're finding themselves really on the outskirts of the party, uh, wondering whether they have a political home. You know, you 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 put your finger on something, and I want to come back and examine that part of it, but let's go to the right side of this for a second, because you had mentioned uh, the American Enterprise Institute earlier. You might yep. just as well say the Heritage Foundation, or for that yep. matter, um, the Hudson Institute, uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. These are uh, probably the leaders of conservatism, conservative thought. You can even go to some of the other web zines if you want. You will have disagreements, but you won't. Yeah. Ha- you won't have shaming and shutting down. The, the Federalist Society, which is going to take up a issue with you and me in a few moments, we're going to address uh, over an issue at Stanford right. in a few moments. The Federalist Society, more than anything else, is a debating society. More than anything else, if you go to their conferences, it's various perspectives on law and public policy from various perspectives within the right or within what you might broadly call conservative jurisprudence. Um, that 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 is a different kind of thing than what you're pointing to, uh, which I would point to as well on the left. And I think you were saying earlier, either on or off air. The interesting thing about the left is, you know, yes, none of these things were a thing three years ago. They they keep moving these goalposts that they expect everyone to uh, Martinet like follow and march to. And boy, the moment you don't, the moment you just keep your toe in the old water rather than the new water, you're out. You're done. Well, and and just look at that the piece from Teixeira, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, the fact that he has to argue. What he calls these, he gets to a certain area of the piece where he makes these, what he calls common sense propositions, right? Where number three is equality of opportunity is a fundamental American principle. Equality of outcome is not. Uh (laughs) That is is heresy in some areas of uh, the progressive movement. Um, And several of these others, uh, proposition number six People who want to live as a gender different from their biological sex should, sex should have that right. Yeah. However, biological sex is real, and spaces limited to biological women in areas like sports and prisons should be preserved. <laughs> now, I can't believe we're having this discussion. I, I know. Right. I know. But, but the fact that this needs to be argued from somebody on the left to the left just shows how far that spectrum is. And I don't think we see especially on some of these issues that he points out, that width, if you will, of a spectrum on that, the right. I, I, I totally agree with that point, and I also think he is engaging in a task that will not, not in the near future, be completed, because who, who, who does yeah. he expect to actually say that and then survive the office they're in? They would be primaried if they're an elected leader. Yeah. Um, and they would be sent to Coventry if they were, you know, some kind of journalist or other kind of smoke. Let me take the quick break, Pete Peterson, uh, of the dean. Uh, he is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, the best school in the country if you are looking for a career in public policy. As you can hear from our discussions and our regular discussions, uh, boy, do we, do we need more students and graduates from places like Pepperdine 
for all the schools that are the problem. Pepperdine is the solution. We'll be right back. Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter as well, at Pete4CA, Pete, the number 4CA, and, of course, the Pepperdine School of Public Policy's website, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, having raised some of the things you've raised and having me invoked the Federalist Society, we got to talk a little bit about what took place at Stanford Law School. Um, Yeah. Yeah, with... with, um, Federal Judge Stuart Kyle Duncan. Uh, he, we've discussed it on the show. Most people know the story. There, the Federalist Society invited this Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals judge to come and talk about a fairly anodyne top- topic having to do with uh, procedures and litigation, and they wouldn't let him speak. And the they wasn't just law school students, which would have been problematic enough. It was administrators at the uh, Stanford Law faculty who took the opportunity to, while he was there, take the microphone and denounce him equally, he, uh, as, equally as, as the student protesters and rioters were, and rioting is a good word for it. He wrote in a um, Wall Street Journal piece, he said, the most disturbing a- aspect of this sh- shameful moment is what it says about the state of legal education. Stanford is an elite law school. The protesters showed not the foggiest grasp of the basic concepts of legal discourse, that Mm -hmm. one must meet reason with reason, not power, and that jeering contempt is the opposite of persuasion, that the law protects the speaker from the mob, not the mob from the speaker. Um, This, you know, we, we, I guess, can expect it, these temper tantrums here and there, and maybe we're used to it at uh, undergrad facilities, but to see it at these elite law schools is now something quite different, and I, I don't know where this how this ends well. Yeah, it is uh, just so disturbing, and one of the points that the judge made, I, I missed a piece today, I've just been on the road all day uh, today, but one of the points that I saw him make in the if you will, after action interviews yeah. right after this uh, conflagration, was that um, his concern was really for the Federalist Society students. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, this this was an event hosted by the Federalist Society, and if folks don't know who that is, that's a, uh, essentially a debating, a center-right, it could be said, more uh, traditional, uh, originalist view of the Constitution. Um, but but a debate society, nonetheless, uh, with chapters in many law schools throughout the country, uh, they were the hosts of this particular judge. And not only were they faced with uh, being present as their classmates were ridiculing a speaker that they brought on the campus, uh, but there were posters put up around the Stanford campus mm-hmm. with photographs of the Federalist Society members mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. these Stanford law students, mm-hmm. basically saying that they should be ashamed of themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a whole other level of intimidation. What, that, can I just add to that real quick? One protester yeah. screamed at the judge, we hope your daughters get raped. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, just so people get the and, full And again, yeah. it is... This is the number two law school ranked by U.S. News, the number two law school in the country. Yeah. 
And I remember we, I actually organized a panel up in the Bay Area uh, several years ago discussing viewpoint diversity with a number of faculty from Bay Area schools, Cal and Stanford predominantly. But I actually had Michael McConnell uh-huh. on there, mm-hmm. uh, a well-known professor and judge, um, but was at uh, Stanford Law School. And I remember him at the time, him saying, you know, my conservative students are getting a better education than the progressive ones Mm -hmm. because they're forced to stand and deliver every day. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that comment Mm -hmm. when I watched the video from the event because this has gone to another level. I really wonder what Judge McConnell would say today um, because this isn't anymore just standing your ground. It's, It's real intimidation and and dismissal. I don't know how it ends. Short segment. You, can you stay one more? We have a longer yeah. one. Yeah. Yep. I don't know how this ends or, or gets fixed, except for there is evidently a movement, Pete. I'll just mention this as we go to break. There is evidently a movement of several federal judges who are beginning to state that they will simply not hire clerks from law schools that allow this to happen. We saw this with a Yale incident, a Yale Law School incident about a year ago. And, boy, if they're serious about that, if these elite law schools cannot get their students clerkships in the federal judiciary, that could change a lot of things, including those kinds of rankings that are so precious to them. Because, right, the feedership into clerking for federal judges is the feeder to a successful legal career for many of these students. And it may have to come from that direction. Let me take the quick break. Pete Peterson, I'll be right back. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He is a leading uh, national uh, speaker and writer on issues uh, related to civic participation and all kinds of uh, important uh, intellectual pursuits, uh, both um, theoretical and practical. Uh, Pete, we were just talking about the, the, the free speech problem, the free dumb to speak at law schools of all places where a federal judge was heckled down and off the stage and subject to the kind of worst verbal brickbats I've ever seen. Um, a fairly, uh, you know, a relatively unknown, his his biggest crime evidently, uh, the most offensive thing to these uh, Stanford Law students and administrators who were part and parcel of this, was an opinion he wrote uh, denying a federal prisoner um, the ability to have ordered that the prison guards use his new pronouns after uh, right. identifying separately from the sex he was born with post-conviction. Uh, to speak about things we weren't speaking about three years ago, right? Right, um, right, right. It's, it's the most narrow sliver of an issue that I guess is not such a narrow sliver of an issue to large portions of the public. What is to be done? Well, as I was mentioning, evidently there is a movement in the federal judiciary to start considering just not taking students as clerks from these law schools. I don't know if that will send a message. Someone said to me, well, maybe alumni stop donating. I, I don't know about the alumni donating thing. My guess is the alumni who donate at this point are probably fairly liberal left anyway. Um, but you know, if the judges do stop taking clerks from these schools and announce as such, that could have a serious impact on these schools and their ability to attract top students and to get top ratings, I think. Yeah, well, it certainly would have an impact, and especially as 
students consider an array of different law schools to apply to, uh, the, the schools where uh, the recruiting for those positions happens. I mean, there's, there are a limited number of these clerkships yeah, every that's year. Right. That's and right. so as other schools are able to promote a rise in the clerkships that they may be taking, uh, that certainly could swing uh, the balance either of rankings or even just uh, student applications and everything that rolls out from that. I, I agree that this is it's difficult to see how this ends well or how this ends quickly. Um, but in the end, and this was part of my presentation today, we, we are seeing um, not just these uh, networks of judges coming together in the, in the law school case, but we are seeing increased uh, networking of donors. Uh-huh. There's a group okay. called the American Council on trustees and alumni yeah, sure. that uh, has really brought some issues to bear in in organizing donors who are disappointed with uh, their alma mater on these issues of free speech. And we're beginning to see it with what might be called red state legislatures and governors. Yeah. Uh, obviously, some know what Governor DeSantis has been doing in Florida, uh, the hiring of uh, former Senator Ben Sass to mm-hmm. head up the University of Florida system, yep. the placing of people with a little bit more balanced viewpoints on uh, governing boards yep. of colleges and universities. Yep. Uh, we've seen two new civics institutes launch in just the last couple of months, one at the University of Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, in which Bill Lee launched that with much fanfare and some significant state funding. And at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, even a kind of a purplish state uh, politically like North Carolina, uh, they understand that they're not going to be able to fire all the tenured (laughs) faculty, but at least they can take a step in creating something new that will attract more balanced faculty and still offer classes that promote and support viewpoint diversity. So there's a real movement afoot that I think is is exciting to follow. I, I agree with you, and now you've put something in my head that you couldn't get out of yours that I'm not going to be able to get out of mine, and it's that Michael McConnell point. Um, yeah. Because one wants to maybe... You know who's not been heard from here in the Stanford case, unless I missed it, is some of the law faculty at Stanford. We've heard from administrators. We haven't heard, and we've heard from students, but we haven't heard a lot from the law faculty. And... There is this irony taking place that to go to law school is to educate yourself, obviously, in, 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 in American jurisprudence and how to become a lawyer or a judge or something, a prosecutor or a defense, a defense attorney or a civil litigator. Um, and, and they're not allowing spokesmen or representatives from the judiciary on the campus who represent – the majority consensus of American legal thought in the Supreme Court as it exists now and probably at least half the federal judiciary. It begs a question or raises the question, what kind of education are they getting and will it be worth anything if these students are not trained to even know the perspective that they will be in front of if they ever appear before a court? Yeah, well, and it struck me as I was watching this in-class protest, will these students ever appear before this specific judge? <laughs> right, that too, right. 
<laughs> right? Right. Uh, because you're not going to be able to shut him down then. Right. Because when the robes go on and the court and the case begins, the power dynamics shift utterly. Yeah. And if you're not able to, if you're not being prepared for that, uh, then you're you're really setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. And that's the thing that back to McConnell's point that it, it's it's one thing to have a slightly more difficult time in the classroom because you're a conservative. Uh-huh. It's another thing also not to be prepared to engage in real debate and deliberation as happens in courtrooms throughout the country. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you, I mean, I, I, I my left wing education credentials are pretty good. I, I went to left wing schools and yep. And I, and I got to tell you, I mean, it, to not be familiar with the other side's argument is to not be educated. It, it, yep. It's just that quite quite simply that. And and yep. I think conservatives have never had a problem with that because they can't avoid it even if they wanted to. So so left wing is the culture in the academy. But for the left wing students who think that the bubbles they live in, these little anatevkas, if you will, uh, are where – where where they're going to be entering once they get their that once they get their uh, degrees and graduate, yeah. it's a fantasy. Yeah. It's a fantasy that is not the judiciary as it exists right now. It is, and again, um, number two law school in the country yeah. Yeah. that is frankly not preparing people for That's the it. jobs that they're going to be taking on. It's I exactly mean, that, it. that really. And as a parent or someone who's paying, I don't know. Seventy, eighty thousand yeah. dollars a year. I don't know what it costs yeah. to go to Stanford Law. Yeah. That has to be galling. That really has to be galling. Unless they're in it for the long haul, and this is the yeah. approach to ultimately this is the, this yeah. is what courtrooms yeah. are going to look yeah. like in the future. Yeah, boy. Yeah, boy. Well, it's not what Pepperdine looks like, and uh, you and I will resist <laughs> it. God bless you, Pete. Thanks for uh, spending some of your Friday afternoon with us. We delight so much in your visits here, and uh, I want to wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day, if that's something you celebrate. And yeah, I got the green tie on today. Oh, green good. Tie all right, all right, yeah. all right. Very ecumenical over there at Pepperdine. <laughs> and a great weekend, buddy. Thank you. Thanks, Seth. You betcha. God bless. I'm Seth Liebson. I'll be right back. Welcome back. You've probably been hearing me talk about we why refi for a while now. And if you still have some questions, feel free to contact why refi at 888-YREFI34. They can put you in touch with any number of satisfied customers who have been happily investing with them from the Phoenix area. And they want me to ask you how your IRA is doing as well. If you would like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the Fed or the stock market, um, you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds and keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. InvestYrefi.com on the web or 888-YREFI34. I'm always taken in these conversations with um, with that great uh, line from uh, Judge Leonard White in The Bonfire of the Vanities, played by Morgan Freeman in the movie, where he says, after the Al Sharpton character calls him, this black judge, a racist. He says, you dare call me racist? Well, I say unto you, what does it matter, the color of a man's skin, if witnesses perjure themselves, if a prosecutor enlists the perjurers? And when a district attorney throws a man to the mob for political gain and 
Men of cloth, men of God, take the prime cuts, talking to the Sharpton character. He asks, is that justice? Let me tell you what justice is, Leonard White says. Justice is the law. Justice is the law. And the law is man's feeble attempt to set down the principles of decency. Decency, he repeats. And decency, he says, is not a deal. It isn't an angle. It's not a contract. It's not a hustle. Decency. Decency is what your grandmother taught you. It's in your bones. Now you go home, go home and be decent, people. Be decent, he implores the mob. I don't know why you couldn't find adults at these schools and colleges and universities and law schools who could say that to the riotous mobs that call themselves students of the law. They are anything but students. They are anything but decent. We've got a real special treat coming up for you next. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 